Investors Chronicle. Welcome to another episode of the IC Interviews podcast. I'm Dan Jones, the Deputy Editor of Investors Chronicle, and we're very pleased to have Simon Thompson back with us today. Simon joined the IC in 1998. He's an associate editor on the magazine. For the past decade, he's focused on smaller companies' coverage, including but not limited to the annual bargain shares portfolio. Simon, good to have you back. How are you? It's, it's great to be back. And um, yeah, in, in going to be enjoying this podcast. Indeed, I hope we all will. So it's, it's a year since you were last on. And now, as then, we're going to look back at the, the 12 months that have just happened and, and reflect a little bit and, and also, of course, look ahead to 2024. Why don't we start maybe counterintuitively by looking ahead? Next year, you know, the, the market action we've seen in the past few weeks has really been perhaps focused on the idea of interest rate cuts. At the same time, there is some concern still about a recession in the UK and the impact that might have. So at a very broad level, those two big, perhaps conflicting market narratives, which do you think will be the most important or which is going to be the most likely scenario for small caps next year, which is going to have the biggest bearing on the market? Without a doubt, inflation and interest rate expectations are key. Inflation has fallen from an average of 10.7% in the fourth quarter of 2022 to around about 4.6% averages forecast in the current quarter. And the OBR latest forecasts are looking for an average of 2.5% in the fourth quarter of 2024. So almost a halving of inflation again. At the same time, UK gilt yields have eased back in recent weeks and definitely since the summer. Two-year gilts is around about 4.5%. Five- and 10-year gilts are both 4% now. To put that into some perspective, back in the summer, two-year gilts were one percentage point higher, about 5.5%. The five-year gilt was 4.75%, and the 10-year gilt 4.5%. If both inflation and bond yields continue to trend down, and I'll discuss this a bit later, why, why I definitely think that's going to happen, then it eases margin pressure on corporates, means real wages rises for employees in what is still a tight labour market characterised by skill shortages in key areas. It also means that the UK housing market and sectors that feed off it are likely to outperform as those people in work have more cash in their pockets. Of course, the elephant in the room that could derail this narrative is potential for the Israel conflict and also Russia and Ukraine to lead to a spike in energy prices. But regards the Russia conflict, that that just hasn't happened in the last um, nine nine months. Speaking of the last nine months, I mean, the, there's no getting away from the fact it has been uh, another difficult year for uh, smaller companies and AIM shares in particular. Why do you think that's happened, even though we have belatedly perhaps seen interest rates peak? Um, is it you know concerns about the state of the economy? Is it some of the structural issues that people have talked about this year and there's been a lot of concerns about the London market in general. What, what do you think, again, at a top-down level is really the, the issue there? It's not just one issue. There, there are multiple reasons for the underperformance. Um, the first mm. one being persistent and in high inflation, which impacts end companies more, given that London's junior market is more cyclical and interest rate-sensitive companies listed. Uh, there's been a buyer strike. Fund flows have been negative since September 2021 into small caps. Um, pension funds and insurance companies have been reducing their weightings to UK equity, and that's accentuating outflows and creates a vicious circle. 
there's been a dearth of IPO activity. It's completely dried up. So there's been a lack of new listings to tempt buyers into the market. There's a lack of flag-bearing top funds to attract buyers to. There's no Warren Buffett in the UK, that's for sure. M&A activity, yep, that, that's, that's spiked this year, and I'll discuss more of that later. Um, but what that means is it's cherry-picked the best companies on AIM. So by definition, the average rating attributed to the remaining companies will be lower in the absence of higher-rated new listings replacing the takeover companies. Investor sentiment, of course, you know, that, that's, that's been dire. It's not been helped by UK government instability. The list trust moron premium, as it's known, um, impacted flows not just in the UK gilt market, but in the UK equity market too. Greater risk aversion impacts small and micro caps most. And I think we, we've got to also pay some attention to the Bank of England. The forecasts have just been far too pessimistic, which impacts sentiment negatively. In November 2022, to put this into perspective, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, was forecasting the longest recession on record for the UK economy, a spike in unemployment to 6.5% of the workforce by the first quarter of 2025. Guess what? The recession is yet to materialise, and unemployment has only risen from 36 to 4.2%. He was wrong, and not for the first time. Moreover, Although UK inflation is still above that of the Eurozone, analysis by Premier Gordon highlights the difference in inflation between the UK and the G20 average over the last 25 years has been zero. The implication being that as higher energy price distortions drop out of the UK inflation numbers, the inflation rates will converge. This has simply not been communicated by the Bank of England in its forecasting. So the narrative in the media has just been far too negative. And in a risk-averse environment, small caps and micro-cap companies in the equity market are impacted most. The final point I'd make is that GDP growth has been understated by the ONS, the Office for National Statistics. Recent revisions to UK GDP show that real GDP is almost 2% ahead of the start of 2009, so prior to the pandemic, that's higher real growth in both France and Germany. Namely, the reality on the ground is better than the perception. On which note, I mean, what will be the catalyst for an improvement in small cap fortunes then? A lot of those issues you've described are, you know, misplaced pessimism, things like that, which, you know, there's a catalyst there already in some ways in that the economy hasn't been as bad as people expected. But do you see some, you know, potential for a big shift in sentiment, or will it come down to a case-by-case basis? Personally, I think this is an outstanding buying an opportunity. Price-per-earnings ratios are below 10. Valuations have not been distressed since the global financial crisis. Discounts and small-cap investment trusts are the widest since 2008 too. If history is any guide, then expect a sharp equity market recovery. To put this into context, post the 2008 global financial crisis, the average small-cap investment trust or more or less doubled in value over the next three years, according to research from Kepler. High returns were also enjoyed after other recent troughs, 2003 and 2016. And also, numerous small companies index, every time it's had a negative year, which it will this year, it has enjoyed positive returns over the next three years. That's well worth noting. And what about management teams? You know, you speak to a lot of companies, of course, as well as you know, looking at all the accounts, as one would expect. What's the mood like out there? both in terms of their own prospects, but also the prospects for their shares after you know, a very difficult period on the market. The mood and narrative are not half as bad as the ratings imply. Um, 
Of course, many directors are cautious and conservative, but this creates potential to over-deliver. I've actually gone through the watch list of companies that I've got. I, I covered 93 companies for Investors Chronicle, 64 have maintained guidance, 15 have downgraded, 14 have upgraded guidance this year. Of more interest to me is the polarization of companies that are either outperforming or underperforming. Generally, the outperformers are benefiting from structural growth trends of low debt or net cash positions, generate decent free cash flow and have potential to take market share. This provides them with defensive characteristics. That's not going to change anytime soon. Examples of this are Billington, structural steel company that's feeding off growth in data centers and NHS infrastructure spend. Um, Journeyo, a smart transport company that is feeding off UK government's funding. Equals Group, technology payment platform for SMEs. Litigation capital management, well, litigation funding benefits in periods of economic weakness. Solid State, so a recent offer report company, 20% of its revenue comes from defence spending. And Spectra Systems, um, banknote and brand authentication technology, which deters fraud. So the, these are structural themes that these companies that are outperforming are all actually benefiting from. Of course, I, I've got 15 underperformers there that have downgraded guidance too. They've got common themes, constrained balance sheets. They've been impacted by margin pressure. They're more exposed to general economic trends. What are the management doing? Well, they're taking costs out of the businesses to try to protect margins, acts or cut dividends. But ultimately, the profitability of those companies um, is at the mercy of more subdued markets. The, the other point is that there is a massive difference in the investment returns that you would have made this year between following the companies that have outperformed, i.e. upgraded guidance, and those that have downgraded guidance, given the risk aversion in the market. So those 15, 14 companies that have Upgraded guidance have produced a 47% total return this year. The 14 companies that have downgraded guidance have actually lost 28% of their value. I guess that's a sign of the you know the kind of difficult market we're in, isn't it? But also the opportunity that that is there for these outperforming companies that aren't being recognised. You were you talked about dispersion there, and I was going to come on to that because our colleague Alex Newman has written that uh, you know in this environment of higher interest rates, perhaps. It is leading to a greater dispersion of returns than we've become accustomed to over the past decade, particularly among small caps. And it sounds like you do potentially agree with that. You know, it is harder to sift through them now or the the relative returns are certainly more polarised. There is polarisation of returns, but I've got a thesis on this. I think that the real risk to markets is deflation, mm. not inflation. And one that central banks are dangerously underestimating right now which suggests larger and quicker cuts to interest rates than current market expectations. And if I'm right, then I expect an across-the-board bounce in both general equity markets, but also small cats in particular, in a down cycle for interest rates. What, what's the rationale behind this? Well, just look at the implosion of credit in China, deflation prices being exported to the West, and the weakened deflationary oil prices too. Brent crude is off 25% since the summer. Also, the consensus of the US Federal Reserve, uh, European Central Bank and Bank of England is that the natural rate of interest has jumped to a permanently higher level so the economy can cope with sharply higher borrowing costs. The group think is that we are never going back to zero rates and negative bond yields. However, central banks have been misled by false assumptions about the natural rate into over-tightening. 
That's because the natural rate is determined by movements in bank loans and debt securities or so-called so private credit aggregates. The key is whether they're rising or falling. They've been falling at an alarming rate across the West this year. Furthermore, real long-term interest rates are simply unsustainable at current levels. The average deficit prior to the COVID-19 pandemic was 2.4% in advanced economies. It's going to be 5.2% this year, according to IMF data. Ultimately, there's only one way out of this, and that's cutting interest rates in response to the combination of slowing economic growth, falling inflation expectations, and the inability of countries to create the growth needed to drive tax, tax receipts to pay for higher interest burdens at current rates. So if I'm right, and the move in interest rates is down, and far more sharply than the market is actually expecting, this is going to be incredibly good news for small cap stocks. It's an interesting point about uh, deflation, because clearly this was what uh, the world was worried about for a long time after the financial crisis, hence you know, in part the reason for zero interest rates and quantitative easing. And, you know, that was very much a deleveraging world. When we think about what's happened since then, obviously, we've had the return of inflation, much higher interest rates. But a lot of that was driven by the, the pandemic as well. And the, you know, hopefully unique effects caused by that. So in some ways, you mentioned China, but but are these kind of deflationary fears and issues that the world's been working through since 2008? Are they playing a role as well in the, in this theory? Well, well, they are. I mean, if you if you look at the reasons for China's growth, it was massive infrastructure spend, you know, to consumer boom. Well, look at look at the data coming out of China. You've got a credit market that's on the verge of an implosion. You've got consumer spending that is well behind what we were expecting when China came out of the COVID restrictions. Export growth. Well, you know, the the country's a massive exporter, hence its overseas um, reserves, uh, foreign reserves. Well, for six months this year, up until the latest month, the exports from China were declining month on month. Um, that's telling you a story. And on top of that, it's got massive overcapacity in manufacturing in the country. That, that overcapacity is going to be exported, and that's going to be exported to the West. And that just means one thing, deflationary pressures. I mean, it's very interesting. I, I am certainly sympathetic to that point of view, I think, as well. And it has been almost forgotten, perhaps unsurprisingly, over the past couple of years, given the headline rate of inflation and the actual inflation we've seen. But but we should be conscious, I think, that, that some of these pressures are certainly still there. And, and perhaps, as you said, that will be the big test for next year to see how far Titan has gone relative to where it ends up at the end of next year and whether central bankers start panicking in the opposite direction. To come back to the companies and, and, and their specific performance at the moment, I wanted to talk about earnings downgrades and upgrades. We've, we've spoken about company guidance and you know how they've shifted, and generally the picture is quite good there. What are analysts, which you know, as much as we may uh, want to do our own work on companies, you know, they do provide a, a, a benchmark for each stock, and they do provide a you know a sounding board almost from which people can base forecasts. What are, what are they saying about uh, companies? prospects in the months ahead are we seeing more upgrades downgrades how are they feeling well there's, there's definitely more downgrades because the finance departments of companies are more conservative more cautious mm. um, making more conservative assumptions about growth uh, going forward than they were six months ago 12 months ago and ultimately if, if we're going to be honest the finance director tells the highest broker what 
the internal budget is and then the house broker then produces a note with with those forecasts sure and um by de by definition um company directors are overly optimistic generally speaking it's a, it's a human trait we're, we're all generally more optimistic so it doesn't take much for those assumptions um for company directors to be downgraded when the economic outlook starts to deteriorate or or weakens and that's basically what what we're seeing but i'd, I'd also go back that it's not across the board um there is mm. polarization of the market so the companies with defensive characteristics are outperforming and they, those are generally the ones that have got structural growth drivers, um, some of which I've already mentioned. Um, and those that are underperforming are the ones with less pricing power, may have balance sheet constraints, but are definitely more exposed to the global economy in any downturn in it. So, yeah, to answer the question, that there's the, the pressure is on downgrades rather than upgrades. And when you consider your own company analysis and, you know, the past two years has, has been the theme of this entire show, have been clearly very different from the, the previous 10 or the previous 15. You know, has there been anything in the past two years or you know, when you look back in some that has made you think, oh, that's, a, you know, a useful lesson to learn about this environment we're in or, you know, a reminder of, of you know, some of the tenets of good company analysis or what do you find yourself thinking when you look back on this period? Well, actually, firstly, free cash flow generation is critical. Companies that comfortably service their debts and operating costs are attributed to higher valuations. So I've mentioned Journeyo, Equals Group, Solid State, Spectra Systems, um, as, as alpha companies that have actually produced reports on all have got fantastic free cash flow generation. I, I can also add mobile payment platform Phoenix Mobile too. Those companies are not only generating absolute performance, but also relative outperformance to declining a market. That's not going to change. Secondly, watch out for companies with short-term debt maturities that may or are very likely to have to refinance at significantly higher interest rates. That explains why I look for long-duration debt profiles for companies uh, to actually mitigate that risk. Keep an eye on stock levels too. Uh, when interest rates were 0.1% in the UK and companies could borrow it to 3% above on your Bank of England base rate, then the financial cost of actually tying up capital and inventories was low, was relatively low. That's no longer the case with some small caps being forced to borrow at rates of 8 or even 9% a year, a margin of 3 4% above Bank of England base rate of 5 quarter percent Tying up capital in stock is a drag on financial performance and means that sweating the balance sheet is required to maintain levels of profitability. So keep a really close eye on company stock levels. I'm paying close attention to debt covenant ratios as well for the simple fact that in the current risk-averse market environment, any company that warns on a breach of a covenant is going to see its share price absolutely hammered. This market's taking no prisoners. And actually, finally, companies deleveraging balance sheets effectively pass more of the economic interest in the enterprise from debt holders to shareholders. And not only do you risk the investment case, but it's potential to give or lead to a higher rating. And the number of, of shares you look at, as you say, is, is considerable, but equally there are an even more considerable number of companies on AIM and you know in the small cap universe. There have been that there has been that, you know, takeover boom or certainly spike in, in the past couple of years and a relative dearth or almost a complete dearth uh, for a long period of IPO activity. So do you find, you know, when you're, you're scanning the opportunity set that uh, it's narrower 
in terms of maybe absolute numbers or certainly in terms of companies that look interesting? Or conversely, I suppose, do these, you know, valuations that a lot of the companies are on mean there's, there's more than, than you would have found over the past few years? Oh, the, relatively speaking, there's, there's more because the valuations are so low. Mm. And you've also got to look at the um, the market environment. So you, as I noted, there's M&A activity. It's, it's spiked up this year by the start of October. 32 AIM companies um, had been bid for or were closing out takeovers. Um, a lot of those 32 companies, four companies were ones that I covered and had buy recommendations on Gresham House, Fund Manager, Crestchick, uh, producers, load banks, uh, K3 Capital Management, uh, corporate finance boutique, and cybersecurity firm Cape Technologies. All those four companies had one thing in common the bid premium and the return you actually made on those investments was eye wateringly good. The average bid premium in the first three quarters of this year for those 32 AIM companies that um, have been taken over was 47%. So th- there are opportunities, even in this, you know dire market environment to make decent returns. The other point worth noting is that trading volumes have fallen off a cliff. Go back two years in 2021, the average trading volume was 8.3 billion pounds of shares a day. The average this month is four points. Well, the average so far this year has been 4.3 billion or less than half or roughly half that, that level of two years ago. What this means is that because there's less investor interest in the AIM market, it's creating under the radar investment opportunities to exploit. Also, there's a lack or even less broker coverage for certain smaller microcat companies. And that gives me an edge because I do my own research. And just to give you a recent example of that, Asset Co and Asset Managers, uh, my November Alpha report, it was trading um, middle of last month on a 60% discount to some of the parts valuations despite the fact that a third of the market cap was in cash. It owns a stake in a tech platform uh, that's been independently valued at 150% of the market cap. And on top of that, it's got a fund management business with 3 billion assets under management, most of which is equity funds, about 2.8 billion of that is in equity funds that could actually turn profitable in 2024. And that could happen sooner with a positive tailwind behind the market. So th- those are the types of opportunities that I've I've been spotting. So yeah, in, in terms of the number of companies listed, yes, it's shrinking on AIM, but in terms of the investment opportunities, there's even more because of the valuations. And that liquidity point, so what does that mean investors have to bear in mind? Obviously, private investors typically themselves are not going to move the market, but, but equally that, that can mean obviously bigger spreads and things like that to watch out for. It can, and you get far bigger movements in share prices than you'd be expecting. Mm. Um, or you would have expected two years ago because of the re- reduced buying activity. That that's definitely worth watching, it's especially when companies warn that you've, you commonly you see companies say, "Oh, our earnings are going to be downgraded five percent, and the stock price will come off twenty percent on the day." Now, that, now that's disproportionate. It's wiping twenty percent off the value, the market capitalization of a company, for a five percent downgrade in earnings, which may just be this year. It may bounce back next year, or it may still be delivering growth, but maybe not as much growth. So, so in that that environment, yes, um, investors have got to be careful. But my thesis is next year is going to be a golden year for small cap investing. What are the on that note, perhaps you know, what are the sectors that look particularly interesting? If you can uh, generalize in that way, or you know, and vice versa, what what are the areas of the market that 
throw, throwing up more individual opportunities? Um, I'd be overweight renewable energy. Um, I, I put readers into a stock called Triple Point Energy Transition a couple of months ago. It's currently trading on a 41% discount to NFE. It's hardly got any debt. Um, it pays a 10% dividend yield, which is fully covered by operational earnings. It invests in hydro plants, battery farms, solar parks. I mean, sure, the, the 97 million pound close end funds has taken time to be fully invested, but it really shouldn't be trading at such a deep discount. And in any case, if you can lock in a 10% dividend yields, the rule of 72 tells you in seven years time, you'll double your money just by recycling the dividends back into the shares. Um, and you're probably going to double your money far sooner because I can't see it being still trading on a 10% dividend yields in seven years time. The, the other one that really stands out is the insurance sector. It's writing off, well, the, the, the sector is benefiting from a positive rate premium cycle and one that seems to have further legs. Um, across the global insurance industry, uh, premium rates rose 3% in the last quarter, 23rd consecutive quarter rate rises. And they've been relatively consistent as well across regions. And one company that is benefiting from that, that I follow is BP Martian Partners, which has just on the 7th of December announced a disposal of uh, one of its investments for a whopping 33% premium to book value and potentially 100% premium to book value if an earnout is paid. And this company now, when that transaction completes, will hold 44% of its NAV in cash, will strip out the cash from its market capitalization of 156 million quid, and you're getting 120 million pounds worth of investments across its, the rest of its portfolio in the price for half their carrying value. And it's not as if this company's underperformed over the years. I first put readers into it in January 2012 at 90 pence. Share price today is £4.33, and it's paid out 38 pence worth of dividends. It's generated a total return of over 400% in the last 11, 12 years. Um, yeah, and I, I can see that company, A, over-delivering from its own portfolio, but it's feeding off a very positive insurance market as well. Um, I'm looking at technology too. It's a little known fact that the VIX index at the start of November for eight consecutive days fell on Wall Street. That's the fear of gauge. That's very rare. It doesn't happen that often. Actually, it's only happened 13 times since 1990. And guess what? 12 months later, every time the S&P 500 has been higher, not just a little bit, an average of 14.4% higher. Well, the S&P 500 is currently around about 3.5% higher than it was on the 8th of November. What that's telling me is that if history is any guide, there was a turning point in market sentiment at the end of October, early November, driven by an easing of inflation expectations and ditto interest rates. And market investors are positioning themselves for a bull market continuation in the States. And that, to me, also means better sentiment in Europe and the UK market. I've got another statistic which is worth uh, considering because I, I love history. Next year is the fourth year of the US presidential cycle. The market collapse in 2008 aside when the global financial crisis in October 2008 was at its, its peak. That aside, the S&P 500 very rarely loses money in the fourth year of the cycle. 
the average gain, including that uh, loss in 2008, is around about 6%. So what I'm saying is sentiment in the US market should continue to be positive. But for that, you need positive tech sector given the weighting in the S&P 500. So therefore, I'm looking at technology stocks. And the one on my list, I've got several, but one that stands out as ridiculously valued, undervalued, is Augmentum FinTech. 30% um, of the funds in cash, trace 38% below NAV. And three holdings, uh, Challenger Banks, Upper Bank and Tide in the UK, both of which are profitable, by the way, and a German tech platform, Grover. Those three companies, the valuation of those three companies and the cash back up all the share price. That means you're getting a portfolio of 21 other companies in the price for free. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, S&P cycle because I remember we, or the presidential cycle rather, and the effect on the S&P. So I remember last year we spoke about the third year of uh, the cycle being very strong. And I was looking at that the other day and you said, you know, the average return in those years is 16%. And, and that looks like it's going to be bang on pretty much for, for this year. So, you know, that has certainly played out. This kind of does bring us, though, to the, the bargain shares portfolio. And, and, you know, it's not long now before the uh, 2024 edition. We don't want to go into too much detail, of course, as ever. But, but what's your thinking about bargain shares you know, in general in the past few months and looking ahead to 2024? You know, what, what kind of things are you, are you looking at through that lens? I think it could be a vintage year, given the discounts on offer in the small cap UK markets. As I've said before, ratings have not been this low since the global financial crisis. And if I look at the returns for my bargain shares in 2009 and 2010, the portfolios delivered a 12-month return of 53 and 46% respectively. I feel that history is, and very likely, is about to repeat itself. As I said, 2024 could be a golden year for small cap investing. I think all our readers will hope that does prove to be the case. The one other thing for 2024, just to finish, because we are unfortunately running out of time, it's about another macro point. It will most likely be uh, an election year in the UK as well as the US. Will that, you know, at this early stage, do you see that having any impact on market sentiment, on the way people view UK shares, or is it going to play second fiddle to the you know the economic and the company specific topics that we've discussed earlier on in the show um i i can't see it impacting market sentiments too badly unless there's a hung parliament uh but the latest polls show that the incumbent party is going to get wiped out we're going to have a labor party if not with the majority but in a position to form a coalition very easily with either the Liberal Democrat Party or, or or one other. So you will have a dominant force post the election, or at least it looks that way. What you have to bear in mind is that the UK economy is in a very different place now than it was in 1997 when Tony Blair and New Labour took power. The UK economy was actually doing very well in 97 under the major government. Um, the problem was that um, the Conservatives had lost their way with infighting and after 17 years in power, it, you know, the or 18 years in power, the time had actually come to hand over the baton to, to another party. This time round, the debt ratios are completely different. So uh, UK debt is around about 100% of GDP. As we know from Liz Trust in October 2022, um, the bond market vigilantes take no prisoners. If you announce unfunded tax cuts, UK bond yields will spike. That limits the ability of the next governments to spend, 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 spend. The, the spending I think they will focus on is infrastructure spending, where they can actually generate 
returns and growth from receipts, tax receipts, that will actually cover the cost of the actual spending over, over the long term. And I, I think that will be acceptable to, to markets. So specifically, I can see certain construction companies doing quite well out of it. And the ones that I follow that should do well are mechanical engineer T. Clark, which has got exposure to NHS and education projects, and a construction group called Henry Boots, which has got property development and also construction arm too. I also think that, assuming I'm right in terms of the interest rate cycle, that the housing market could do a lot better than the pessimists are predicting next year. And a positive housing market is good for the economy. So it's good for economic growth forecasts too. I mean, to summarise, no, I can't see the markets falling out of bed if the Labour Party win the next election. Um, but I can see potential for outperformance too. Let's hope so. That, though, does bring us to the end of the show. We have unfortunately run out of time. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been really informative as ever, certainly for me and hopefully for the readers as well. No, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you as ever to Maddie Apthorpe, our producer as well. This has been the final IC Interviews podcast of the year, so we hope you've enjoyed all of our shows through the year. Our other podcasts will continue in December, but from me, I'd like to say Merry Christmas to all of our listeners, and we'll be back in January with more interviews. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.